Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $135 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic, active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today with Margaret Vitrano, Portfolio Manager for ClearBridge Large Cap Growth and All Cap Growth Strategies. And the topic of today's podcast is Delivering Differentiated Growth. Margaret, welcome back to the studio. Thanks for having me. I think it's been a little bit over a year since last time you're in here. I think uh, we were talking NCAA basketball. That's right, because Evan Bauman was with us. Yep, two Duke fans. I'm a Kentucky fan. Um, fortunately, neither of us have a banner to show for it over the last couple of years, but Hopefully next time you're in the studio, we'll we'll be able to say that one of us is happy. That would be great. But this has been an interesting year here in 2018. If you think about January, it was one of the best Januaries on record. Obviously, a lot of that was because of the optimism surrounding the passing of tax reform. And that was quickly followed up through a, a much higher volatility period, which we're going through right now. So the average volatility um, since volatility was a thing since 1990 has been 19.2. I think a lot of investors forget that this is just a normal part of market behavior. I mean, we haven't had volatility for quite some time, so it's understanding how people can be nervous about it. But with the strategy that you run, Margaret, you've been able to put together lower volatility than the markets over the last one, three, and five years and doing it with really great performance. It's a unique approach that you do to the asset class, and uh, you, you invest in different types of growth companies. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so the simple idea is that we want to have different kinds of companies in the portfolio to help diversify the portfolio. And you see that in in tracking error. But, you know, we want to have moderate growth companies that we're buying at reasonable prices. We want to have some opportunistic growth companies that are really more turnaround stories. And we want to, of course, as a growth manager, have some high growth, more momentum-oriented companies. We, We call these all our buckets of growth. Um, That includes the stable bucket, which is really the core of the portfolio. It's more than half of the portfolio. And and I think of those as our steady eddies, our good quality compounders. We've got what we call our cyclical bucket, which is no more than a quarter of the portfolio. And we define that as companies that have revenue or profits that are depressed for reasons that we determined are fixable. Um, Not necessarily cyclical companies. That's that's absolutely correct. So, you know, it could be a couple years ago we owned Target after they had had a security breach because we felt that they could work through that breach successfully. And that's that's a, a turnaround story in our view, but but it could also include economically cyclical companies. Yeah, when I think of a, a name like Target, it doesn't really scream cyclical to me. Yeah. The, you know, the neat thing about the cyclical bucket is that it allows us to own companies that you might not think of as normally belonging in a growth portfolio, but it really helps us diversify the portfolio and help us manage through these periods of volatility um, and account for changes in leadership in the market successfully so, so that we get more consistent performance through, through different periods of volatility. Well, and, and typically those stocks that have sold off quite a bit give you a little bit more downside protection. Yes, that's exactly correct. Um, and lastly, I don't want don't to move on without mentioning our select bucket because, of course, that's been important to our performance over time. That is, um, the select bucket is internet companies, biotech companies, companies that may be growing at multiples of the overall market um, and tend to have some nice secular tailwinds behind them. So those have been really important to our performance through time as well. So those are the the higher growth names that are out there? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. They can be more expensive, but, you know, companies like Amazon or Facebook are are clearly 
core um, to large cap growth strategies. I know when you talk about very high growth companies, it's, it's really hard to to value them because they look expensive mm. at, the, at the face value, but they end up being cheap if you're looking at a longer view. Is there a specific way that you approach, you know, some of these more high growth areas and, and how you value a company like that? With those companies that are in the select bucket, we tend to do some version of um, a modified version of a discounted cash flow. And really the question is, if you think about Facebook right after that company went public, it really was not just about the current earnings that they, the company had. In fact, their earnings were were, were minor um, in terms of the, the addressable market and the addressable opportunities. But what we did was we tried to envision what could the various businesses that they had do to monetize those those users and that engagement over time and then looked at, you know, looked out five plus years and discounted it back. And then, you you know, you see a lot more value creation. It turned out to be a, a very good investment. Yes, it did. Where we sit today. Maybe you could give me a, an example of, of something that you have in the, the stable bucket. I know that's a, a pretty big chunk of the, the portfolio. I think Home Depot is a, is a good example of a stable company. Um, you know, if you think about the business, it's, it's a nice duopoly between Home Depot and Lowe's. Um, spending on home improvement has been improving since 2010, but still um, spending on home improvement as a percent of GDP is still below the 50-year average of 4.5%. I think we're just under 4% now. It's um, it's a nice uh, business within retail because, of course, the shift of consumption from offline to online remains a secular headwind for most retailers. And lumber is is not easy to ship by UPS. So right. Home Depot has a natural um, barrier in their business and, and protection in their business. So that's a great example of a nice, consistent compounder. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Whenever I go to Home Depot, I don't know exactly what I need. Um, so I usually need to talk to someone there to help me figure out what I need to buy and bring it back to my house. And I, I don't know how you can really disrupt that. That, that's exactly right. And do you end up spending a lot more than you thought you were going to spend whenever you go to a home place like Home Depot as well? Yes. Yes. There's always more things in my cart than I bargained for right, going in. Right. Um, how about a cyclical company? Um, I know you had mentioned Target was a, an example that you had back in 2014. Is there anything that uh, that fits that bucket today? Caterpillar is a name that we recently added to the portfolio that I th- think fits nicely in that cyclical bucket. Now, that is an example of a economically cyclical company because the purchase of Caterpillar is really a play on improving global GDP growth and the idea that both within their construction business and in their mining business, um, their their business, while while backlog is up 20% plus, um, those businesses are still way below past peak. Right. And so we still think there's a lot of opportunity for that company to, um, to get back to normalized earnings and grow earnings from here. And that would be buying on, on weakness. I know Caterpillar has certainly had its difficulties uh, over the last you know, four or five years. Yes, buying on weakness. But but frankly, it was really taking advantage of that volatility that you referred to because it was the weakness that we saw in February when the market um, took a nosedive for a few days there. We had been looking at Caterpillar for a while thinking, oh, this is an interesting play where we still think that the business has room for improvement. And all of a sudden, you could buy it 10% cheaper. So that made it even more attractive. And uh, how about a, a select company? I think Amazon is probably the, the stereotypical <laughs> success story within um, within Select. You know that is a business where they um, they really have the best mousetrap as we see it now in terms of taking advantage of that shift of consumption from offline to online. Um, they're in the the leadership position in that business. Uh, it's becoming increasingly profitable because they're a marketplace and they're not just selling their own inventory, but also acting as middleman for for other sellers who want to sell on the internet. And of, and of course, that's profitable. 
And they have the Amazon Web Services business, which is essentially helping folks get to the cloud. Um, that's a business where they're also in the leadership position. Uh, and the surprise last year when they started breaking out segment results is that it's quite, quite profitable. So those it's, are both It's one of their businesses. most profitable segments. Absolutely. I think that was, that was a surprise to us. I think most people thought it was cl- much closer to break even. And it, it's actually very profitable. And one could argue not even really at scale because they're still investing heavily in that business. And it's interesting. I think Amazon Web Services started off as a way that they can make sure they get all the inventory out during the holiday season. And they were thinking about what they, can they do with this excess capacity. And Amazon Web Services was born. Mm-hmm. That, you're, you're correct. It's, um, it's, it's really been a success story that's born out of, you know, a one-time book reseller has really, I think, I think if I had to sum up their competitive advantage, it's really the ability to envision where the future is and how to get there successfully and then monetize it in that regard. And I I can't move on from Amazon without just discussing the Amazon Prime business because those, you know, internet retail and cloud are both big markets that are, are going to have more competition over the next five years. And so I think the relevant question for a company like Amazon is, well, what's the real competitive advantage once Walmart becomes better at this business or once have. Azure, yes, becomes better in the in the cloud business? Um, but the the prime uh, subscription, I think, is, is going to be increasingly important for that company, for Amazon, in terms of being able to protect their ecosystem. Well, I know it's going to be hard for me to move away from Amazon. Uh, we just ordered an automatic dog feeder yesterday morning, and it came by the time I was home from work. So it's going to be hard to beat that uh, that business model. I'm wondering what an automatic dog feeder even looks like, but uh, uh, <laughs> I'll let it go. <laughs> my dog gets up at 5.30 every morning, and uh, he won't let you go back to sleep unless you feed him. So worthwhile investment. Uh, I know you and Peter had been a little bit skeptical of the, the Trump growth tr- agenda, and you're starting to gain a little bit more confidence in this expansion. Um, are there some signs that give you a little bit more confidence and have you adjusted your portfolio uh, as a result? I think it's absolutely fair to say that uh, right after the election in early 2017, we felt that there was quite a bit of optimism, almost euphoria about the changes that could come out of Washington and importantly, the the impact of those changes on U.S. GDP growth without without any thought being given to the execution risk right. around those changes. So we were, I would say, more cautious than the overall market in terms of tax reform or an infrastructure spending bill um, and the impacts that those that those changes could have. Fast forward to mid to late 2017, what has been surprising to us was that um, although none of those changes had yet come out of Washington, um, the, the economic data points simply are better than we expected. Uh, U.S. GDP growth hovering around 3%. We see good demand. We see really good uh, commentary from, from CEOs about their capital spending plan. And, and then we had tax reform, which I think does materially change the outlook. Um, in our view, tax reform is additive to GDP growth in 2018 and in 2019. And so all of that together made us more optimistic about the underlying fundamentals of the U.S. economy. Well, and the, the important takeaway is that it hasn't been additive yet. I mean, we might have a first quarter a negative print of 2% GDP is what they're projecting at this point. But the real effects of tax reform will be felt to the later part of this year and, and well into next year. That's right. I think in some ways we are in the later stages of the economic cycle, but tax reform could push out the, the end of this economic cycle by a year or so. One reason why I think that this economic cycle could have longer legs than most investors give it uh, give chances for is the fact that CFOs and CIOs 
have been looking to invest back into their business through CapEx. Um, if you look at intentions to spend on CapEx, they're through the roof, um, highs that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. And one of the biggest areas that are going to be beneficiaries of that is, is IT or information technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when people think about IT, they think of the FANG, uh, obviously, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Netflix. Um, but IT is much bigger than that. And I know that you and Peter uh, run a portfolio that has an overall underweight FANG. And that's really been beneficial to you throughout the, this year uh, to the start that we've had. So where other areas of uh, technology are you starting to see some strength in, that you're invested in? Ironically, that tax reform benefit and CEOs and CIOs spending more on on CapEx really doesn't have that much of an impact on the the FANG stocks, perhaps with the exception of Microsoft. Sometimes folks throw that mega cap name in there as well. But um, but a couple of the trends that we believe in are the shift to the cloud and and companies really valuing and and pivoting towards the flexibility that um, that shifting to the cloud enables them to achieve. So, you know, we've been successful in investing in companies like Microsoft and Adobe as they have made that move to the cloud. That's been, you know, a couple years in the making. And I would say there are a couple of earlier stage names that are also moving their businesses to the cloud in Oracle or Palo Alto or Splunk. And those are also, you know, beneficiaries over the next couple of years, I think. You know, they've, um, Palo Alto and Splunk have had nice moves. Oracle is, is earlier in that. And still, we still see a lot of upside potential for a, a company like that over the next couple of years. Oh, and Palo Alto is in uh, network security? Yes, yes. And Pal- they're a market leader? They, they are a market leader. I mean, Palo Alto has in our view, one of the best solutions to protecting businesses at the edge in security. And obviously, security is a growing threat. The interesting thing that I think people sometimes forget about is um, moving your information to the cloud means that actually you have to protect it twice. <laughs> you have to protect it in your own data center and in the cloud. So um, so as long as Palo Alto has solutions that can protect your assets in the cloud and on-premise, um, they should benefit and, and in, CIOs and CTOs want a single pane of glass in order to manage those two solutions because otherwise it's too complicated. So that puts them in a really nice position to be able to benefit in both in both parts of the business. Well, and I know a lot of the FANG have been under some scrutiny as far as regulations concerned. Obviously, these are areas of growth that, that really don't have that uncertainty weighing over them. That's correct. I mean, I think the regulatory overhang um, that you're seeing in the real mega cap names it may continue. We may see legislative changes that will affect those companies' businesses. But if you just look back at history, when um, companies like Microsoft or IBM have been under heavy regulatory scrutiny, it has been followed by periods of less aggressive behavior by the companies and, frankly, less good performance by the companies because um, because they've been perhaps a little distracted by some of those regulatory issues. So, you know, I think that some of these mid-cap names, which still have really nice runway for growth, are perhaps better ways to be exposed in tech. Well, I think with the sell-off, because a lot of the FANG names capture the headlines, a lot of investors aren't aware that uh, year-to-date, IT is still the best-performing sector in the, the S&P 500 has the highest percentage of stocks still in an uptrend. It's still maintaining its leadership position. And a lot of that is based on actual earnings, right? This isn't 1999 or 2000 where you have business models without any revenues or earnings. Um, These are companies that have established businesses, moats, and their profitability is uh, the highest in the S&P. I absolutely agree with you. And keep in mind that spending your CapEx dollars on tech is one of the best paybacks that you can spend 
um, in terms of the returns that you can get on that spend. And all of a sudden, tax reform made it even more attractive to spend that dollar on tech. So I think that's probably going to continue to be a space where we see healthy spending. Well, talking about dollars that you have available to spend, one area of the market that I think um, has a lot of capital to be able to spend is healthcare. Um, if you look at healthcare, about 18% of their market cap is held abroad in unremitted foreign earnings. Uh, now with that forced repatriation, a lot of that money is coming back home. Uh, and so far with the first quarter, you had the biggest ever quarter in healthcare with M&A to activity over $150 billion. Um, I think that that's a number that can grind a lot higher from here. Um, but healthcare hasn't really done what it should when the market sell-off that we've seen it hasn't had that de- defensive characteristic. So I know healthcare is a, a pretty big exposure for you and Peter. Uh, biotech specifically is an area that you, you find attractive. What are your thoughts there? Do you think that it will be one of the, the darlings when all is said and done for 2018? Evan Bellman and I were talking about this this morning because I said, you know, there, there must be a catalyst on the horizon that will cause the re-rating. And we've had the abatement of the fears of drug pricing. Okay, so that's no longer really a concern. We haven't seen anything material out of Washington. To your point, we've had M&A. <laughs> right. And frankly, it's, it's caused uh, some re-rating with the mid-cap biotech companies, but not for the group overall. And we have had some clinical trials that have uh, moved forward successfully. I think about Alexion, which just recently had some positive clinical trial developments, uh, and the stock hasn't really re-rated. So, um, so I, th- I think that it's just going to be a matter of time. I think you could have said the same thing about energy before it re-rated. My guess is that if the if the fundamentals of the economy are fine, and we we agree that the the next dollar is probably not going into the fang stocks and we know tech overall has already performed quite well over the last 24 months at some point you're going to see leadership coming out of different sectors so some rotation into energy as you've started to see and probably healthcare as well um, as you see more products uh, speed their way through the FDA hopefully with um, with the FDA Scott Gottlieb coming yes, in yes with Scott Gottlieb who has um, made it pretty clear that his view on the best way to control drug price inflation being let's speed new products to market. And so hopefully that will um, increase the pace of innovation coming out of that sector, which will ultimately lead to that re-rating that we are, we are anticipating. Well, and decrease the cost, I think. That's uh, right. From the beginning to the end, mm-hmm. through to commercialization, it costs about $2 billion to get a drug through. So if you dramatically reduce that timeline, I would imagine that the cost would uh, come down proportionally along with it. One of the questions that we are always asking ourselves about in terms of our holdings or companies that we're looking at is let's make sure that we don't invest in companies that are over-earning on yesterday's products. But let's make sure that we're focused on companies where we think they have a lot of new products potentially coming to the market over the next 24 months or a, a really deep pipeline of potential shots on goal so that you might have um, assuming that there, there is a uh, faster speed to market going forward that, you know, we want to be invested in the winners um, and the ones that do have those products to market. You know, we believe that innovative drugs will continue to generate decent returns with with fair pricing. So um, so that's that's been the focus and look at, looking at pipelines. And, well, and the speed of rotation could be quick. I mean, look at energy. Um, just this quarter of this month, um, energy is up eight, over 8% at this point. It's more than doubled the next best performing sector um, and a big part of that is because oil prices have begun to rally. Now, I've came into the year, I was very excited about energy. Um, it didn't 
looked like a very good call um, for a couple of months, but now it looks like the energy fundamentals are coming back into play. What's your view on that space? Do you have a exposure to a couple names there? We still like energy. What's been um, surprising to us is, and our energy analyst will tell you that I keep asking him what's taking so long because frankly, oil prices started to move up in 2017 and yet our, our holdings weren't keeping pace. And it wasn't just your holdings, it was the energy sector as a whole. That's, you're right. And and so I kept saying to our energy analyst, you know, why are, why are oil prices moving up but the stocks aren't moving up? And the answer is that I think there has been a lot of concern about the, the longer end of the curve and the futures and the durability of the move in oil prices. Um, specifically, a lot of concern that North American production would continue to ramp up and um, create an ongoing supply glut, or that OPEC, who has been um, managing down production, would um, would stop managing down production and therefore cause prices to reverse. And I think they have a meeting coming up here shortly. To yeah, so it, that. if you think about both of those overhangs um, on the, the outlook for oil prices, North American production is based on our conversations with EMP companies um, operating today is is at capacity. In fact, they're all most of the producers are seeing capacity constraints in um, whether it's in sand or in drivers. Um, on the Permian, they're having a bottleneck issues right there. You're right. And so I'm not sure that there's that much room for production to improve in in North America. Switching over to OPEC, the commentary out of them, you know, you can, um, never say never, but the commentary out of them seems to be that they understand that they should be focused on maximizing profits instead of maximizing market share. Um, and the more, the longer that they hold to that uh, belief, um, the better for oil prices. And I think the 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 stocks will continue to move. Schlumberger is one of our holdings where if you look at um, current oil prices, last time oil prices were at the current level, Schlumberger was 80 or $90, materially higher oh, wow. than the company. And where is it today, give or take? It's in the 70, okay. right at 70. So if there is a, a more of a belief that current oil prices will hold, um, then that stock has material upside still from here. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting. There has been zero geopolitical premium put into a barrel of oil uh, really since the downturn that we saw in 2014. Mm-hmm. And if you look upon the horizon, there's a lot of ways that supply potentially could get disrupted. I mean, you have a ruling on Iran, whether or not we want to continue with the nuclear disarmament or put sanctions against them coming up in the next month. Obviously, there's uh, been some issues with Russia here that could disrupt supply. Venezuela has uh, not been able to pump much oil here recently. So I think if one of these issues go wrong, you can see a, a barrel of oil go up a lot higher and Obviously, energy stocks lagging as they have been could catch up fairly quickly. Particularly in a situation where the glut of supply that led us to $40 oil in the first place has abated. Um, demand has held up well, and the the cuts that you've seen out of OPEC and, and some, of, some of the sub- supply disruptions we have seen over the last 24 months have really meant that um, the excess supply that was in the market it has been um, has virtually evaporated. And, you know, there hasn't been any money put into these longer term discoveries. Um, And I think you're going to have a situation if global demand keeps up with where it is, you could be looking out in a couple of years where you just haven't invested to bring that new supply online where there could be a supply crunch. Some of those investments are more barge like (laughs) because they're so big. But to your point, um, expectations are for uh, international spending on EMP 
to be up about 5% for Schlumberger's business. It's, it's been down for the last couple of years. Um, it could be up double digits in 2000, um, 2019 if oil prices continue to hold high. And we'll see, you know, um, we'll see what the company says about what they're hearing from their customers um, internationally and how they're pivoting to, to try to uh, ramp up production. Well, one, one thing that I, gets me excited about energy, if you look at every economic cycle going back to the late 1960s, energy has outperformed relative to the S&P 500 every single economic cycle. So that's a pretty good history to say that, that maybe energy could be a, a sector for outperformance here. Well, we're overweight, so I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Margaret, for, for joining me here in the studio. Um, that's all the time that we have here today. Um, and thank you, everybody, for joining in. Uh, We hope you join us for the next ClearBridge podcast. Thank you. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of April 19th, 2018. and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from the use of this information. 